It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. This is the Court Today replay on C103. As we welcome you along to the programme, you can always email when we, even when we're not on air. Uh, our emails are always available to you, Cork today at c103.ie. And actually, it isn't from Bandon. He's already onto the programme this morning, wondering, picking up on a news story that I heard Barry covering there at 10, uh, wondering what will it take to stop the uh, teacher, uh, Enoch Burke, turning up at what is now his former school in County Westmeath. Elizabeth feels particularly sorry for the pupils. She says it must be distressing for them, especially with all of the publicity surrounding this particular story. And actually, I was following a thread on Twitter uh, yesterday when he had turned up at the school again uh, yesterday. Now, bearing in mind, Friday of last week, it's a week ago, wasn't it, that he was handed his his letter to say he's been dismissed from the school. So he is now up to that. He'd been suspended from his teaching post on full pay, uh, but he was formally dismissed last Friday and he's turned up every day this uh, week and then people wondered would he turn up again today uh, because of course it was announced yesterday by the judge that if he turns up as and from today uh, if he stays there after two o'clock then it is going to cost he will be fined 700 euro a day for every day that he turns up at Wilson's Hospital School in uh, Multifarnham in County Westmeath and as I say I saw a thread on Twitter yesterday with people saying if the press stopped turning up outside the door because I'm looking at a picture that was taken this morning and there's camera crews and there's got to be six, seven, maybe eight journalists they're all trying to get a statement uh, from him because of as always even though he did he did speak yesterday he doesn't take any questions from the press but he he did speak yesterday particularly when he'd heard that the judge was imposing this fine of 700 euro uh, per day and you know the press were trying to ask him yesterday uh, you know will he turn up and he didn't answer that but then he went on on to explain why he was doing uh, what he was doing but people are saying the press didn't turn up that maybe then he would stop turning up but I, I don't 
don't know if he particularly is doing it to court publicity. I mean, if nothing else, regardless of how you feel about this story, this certainly seems to be a man who has a courage, uh, courage of his convictions. But it's going to be an expensive conviction uh, because the High Court are saying €700 Euro per day if he doesn't agree to obey. Because remember, it's a court order as well telling him he's not to be anywhere near the school. And of course, now that he's a former teacher of the school, because that's how he got arrested on uh, Monday because he's trespassing. I mean, if you're if you're anywhere, if any adult is anywhere on a school premises that they haven't been invited onto, they can be uh, arrested for for trespass. So he was trespassing on the school and he was asked to leave uh, and he didn't. Now, in fairness to the school, they haven't seemed to have got the Gardaí involved since every other day this week. He's been driven to school by his father, as his father always does and, and seemingly always did. He turns up at exactly the same time at 8.45, even though this morning they were a minute early. They were at 8.44 and he's just literally been standing outside. He's not allowed into the school, so he's been standing outside a door of the school. At one stage during the week, they managed to get him outside the gates. They closed the gates, but then the gates opened when a school bus was going in and he followed the bus in. And then again, standing outside the school, the principal has come out and told him to leave. He won't, and he stays there until literally close of business. He stays there for the duration of what would have been when he was teaching. His father then comes back and uh, collects him at whatever time school closes on that particular uh, day. But he, even with the threat now of fine of 700 euro a day judging by today it is still not going to deter him even though how they are he doesn't own property he still lives at home uh, with his parents now he has said that he's been saving for a deposit for a house so he does have uh, savings but I mean how they're going to will he pay the fine will be the uh, next one so it's it's one of those stories that certainly isn't going away and to answer Elizabeth's question what will stop Enoch Burke from turning up at the school I really don't know at this stage I mean I really don't know he spent over 100 days in jail before Christmas and I know it's one of the reasons that certainly the powers that be to want to put him back in jail because they felt that when he was in jail it was only giving him the opportunity to promote his religious his very extreme religious uh, beliefs and they felt that that was the wrong thing uh, to do as well so I don't know if jailing him is the uh, answer either uh, your thoughts welcomed 0818103103 and now we did speak yesterday about trains and about the fact that we don't have catering service back on trains. They went during the COVID pandemic and that was understandable. There was very few people even using uh, trains and they didn't want people, you know, they didn't want trolleys going up and down the trains when everyone was trying to social distance and all of that. But there's no reason now why that it can't be COVID rules as to why we don't have catering services. Irish Rail are saying that they can't get anyone to take up the, the contract uh, to do it. And I th- so I, this came into us uh, via Twitter from uh, Sinead. And I think I think this is a, a jolly good suggestion. She said, listening to you about the trains on your programme, how about offering new and small businesses, maybe startup businesses, how about offering them a trial period to provide the service? It will then provide a service to the people on the train and will also provide an opportunity for a business. Yeah, maybe a startup business that's trying to sort of dip their toe in the water to see I have a business idea I think this can work you know maybe somebody making muffins and you know etc the only thing if it's a startup business and it's involving food isn't there very strict criteria involved uh, with that but I think anything any anything that will work to get 
food and provisions back onto the trains I think certainly has to be uh, looked at. I know Thomas Gould yesterday was saying that if Irish Rail if they can't get a contractor to come on and do it then Irish Rail should start you know rather than privatising that part of the service out go back to which I'm assuming which they did at one stage where they employ their own employees and run their own catering company on the actual uh, train. 0818-103-103. Uh, John Paul taking your calls on Ukrainian refugees. And by the way, that meeting is going on this morning. This is to do with the modular, uh, the proposal for modular houses to be erected at a site in Karakil in Mallow. We know that that meeting is happening this morning uh, at 11 o'clock. And uh, Councillor Tony O'Shea, who uh, spoke to us yesterday on the programme, says that if he gets out, before one o'clock, uh, he'll join us on the programme just to, to find out what happened at that meeting that is taking place uh, this morning. It is the local public uh, representatives and obviously the OPW are going to be there as well. Um, and, and everybody sort of waiting to see what has happened. The contractor has gone in to take a look at the site and to see if the site is suitable for modular homes so no doubt we'll have the results of what the company had to say as well and if we get anything as I say before the close of the programme we certainly will uh, bring it to you but a listener says Patricia in order for Ireland to continue to, to accommodate the huge number of Ukrainian refugees that are in this country and the possibility that they, they could come in the coming weeks and months and to do it without prejudice maybe the government should adopt a kind of a fair deal proposal for every house built for a refugee should another one be built for one of our own uh, homeless but bearing in mind they're not building houses for refugees these modular homes are very different to the physical building of houses but maybe yeah I know the point you're making if they're going to put in say 50 houses we don't know how many houses will actually go into that site I heard 34 but I heard somebody else say 50 so if you were say if it was 50 rounded off at 50 25 would be used to house Ukrainian families and then 25 would be used to take people off the council housing list in the area is that something that could be considered some of your thoughts and comments coming in on Enoch Burke and what is it going to take to stop Enoch Burke turning up at his now former school Wilson's Hospital School because the threat of being fined 700 euro a day doesn't seem to be working because he turned up again uh, this morning. Uh, Jim says Patricia I think Enoch Burke must be now identifying as a dog because he's like a dog following his master and he simply can't get him to go home says uh, Jim with a smiley emoji following his comment. Somebody else says uh, this is JC in Crosshaven says Imagine, Patricia, this all started because a girl changed her name and he refused to call her by it. That is what this is all about. Uh, for my listener, says Patricia, the guy, this teacher, I must be going deaf because I didn't hear what he has done. Why is he not let into the school? You are <laughs> it's a story that has been rumbling on now since... Goodness me, I mean, he did 109 days in jail in the run up to Christmas, which was certainly September, October of last year was when it uh, was when it uh, uh, started. But the reason now has got really nothing to do with what happened in the school, which was uh, a pupil was deciding to transition from a boy to a girl and it was to do with pronouns and what pronouns uh, she wanted to be addressed as. That's what it started out as. But now, of course, um, the reason these before the courts is for contempt of court because he had been uh, suspended from school. He was told not to go anywhere near the school. He did. He ended up um, having to go to jail for that and then they released him and then he's since been uh, dismissed from the school 
and he's now turning up at school so he's now now there's trespass going on now but it's to do with the court order more than anything else is the reason he's been fined it's got nothing to do with his religious beliefs even though Enoch Burke will tell everyone it is to do with his religious beliefs somebody says Patricia honestly I feel for that poor teacher didn't he have a right to his views are we living in a strict regime like Russia and uh, Korea it is disgraceful we all have to be so careful now in what we say yeah absolutely he he has a right to his beliefs but doesn't that young student also have a right to his or her beliefs and it turns out that the student in question it was a general email that went around to everybody in the school to explain what was going on in this young student's uh, life uh, as far as I know the he, Enoch Burke wasn't even teaching that particular pupil so wasn't even going to be coming in, in contact with the, the pupil so I think you know when he decided to bring in his religious beliefs uh, into it um, and he has a right to his own religious beliefs and his own views but so does the student and so does the school to back the pupil isn't that what schools are, are meant to do and Rachel in Cork City says hi Patricia I totally agree with the listener expressing concern for the students in Wilson's Hospital School in County Westmeath any student who makes that really really brave decision to come out at school deserves support and a kindness well done to the school for standing up for that student and all members of the LGBT community and that's from uh, Rachel in Cork City and hi Patricia on the Enoch Burke case as I see it the school are taking sides if a teacher was asked to teach Irish and he or she says they they wouldn't or couldn't wouldn't would would they be fired well that's something very different you're asking somebody to teach a subject that they're not able to teach uh, that's completely different to what's what's going on uh, here he's been uh, dismissed uh, because he breached the rules of the school and he now is continuing to breach the high court action so that's very different to somebody saying I'm refusing to teach a particular subject This is Court Today on C103 Email Patricia now with your story or comment Cork Today at C103.ie Now hundreds of people gathered outside Leinster House yesterday to protest at the multi-million euro deal between Quilta and the British private investor fund Gresham House earlier this month as we know it was revealed the semi-state body made a 200 million euro deal with the UK Asset Management Fund. The Save Our Forest demonstration yesterday included more than 20 organisations including the uh, the Rural Ireland organisation and joining me from that group is Gerry Loftus. Good morning to Gerry. Morning, Patricia. Um, Morning, your listener. You are very, you're very welcome to the programme. Now, the Agriculture Minister has pointed out that this deal with Gresham House is only 3.5% of Quilta's total ambition between now and 2050. Is it still wrong in your eyes? That's totally incorrect. And this is a continuation, just briefly, so that people mightn't understand the forestry sector in Ireland. This is just a continuation of what we have there already. And what we have there already for years upon years upon years is taxpayers' money being blatantly abused by putting in place uh, forest schemes so that the rich, they buy the land, they get it fenced for free, tax-free, they get it fenced for free, and then they plant it, which is all that stuff is done in Grant Hades, and then they draw premiums for 20 years or whatever the time, usually 20, and that's all tax-free. So at the moment, we have about 800,000 hectares of big school plantations in Ireland. About 50% of them are owned by Kielce, uh, and the 50% that's not owned by Hulja are owned by rich people, investors, uh, drawn down these grants. Some of them never stood near the land they own. And um, it is corrupt, 
as it possibly can be. It is put there to benefit the rich. Uh, it's all taxpayers' money. And it, and one year, the year 2011, when Ireland was on its knees and when child benefit and pensions and every other social welfare benefit was cut, we still allocated something like 17 million euros for charity that year. So this is a continuation of what's done here behind the backs of the people. Many high-profile uh, politicians knew about this. We now know that two senior ex-Finial ministers, uh, Michael Darcy and Pat Cox, are um, employees or directors of the Gresham House. No, uh, are you, are you, are you sure of that? Are you, are you, oh, that's been clarified. Yeah, Patricia, yeah been clarified, okay, yeah. all right. And uh, so this deal has been going on since 2020. Um, okay, and, and is this and and what we're hearing from the from the minister and uh, indeed from other uh, government uh, ministers is that it's a done deal. Contracts have been signed, and that it, there's no way of unraveling this. Do you think there is a way of unraveling this particular uh, deal? Uh, look, the minister for agriculture and and the minister for public expenditure are the two shareholders in PG. This can be unraveled. This is a political will to do that. Simple as that. And I could, as we called for yesterday's protest, if Deputy McConnell and Og and Deputy Hashish cannot unravel this, well, then the need to resign. This has been totally done underhanded, totally been negotiated in secret the past three years, uh, made known to the public a few days before Christmas when they thought to slip it under the carpet. Uh, and the people that do this uh, behind the backs of it, this is undemocratic. Uh, their own fit for public office and the need to resign as simple as that. And while they talk about 1% was the figure for us, now it's 10 half of the new mention is there. They're saying 3.5. What the people of rural Ireland mm. needs to realise that this is only the tip of the iceberg if this gets away. Because uh, the targets for planting are in or around 500,000 hectares between now and 2050. That's 1.5 million acres, Patricia. So you look at that in that scale, what will happen? And what will happen is it will be a cleansing of the small farmers of rural Ireland because they've done this deliberately to small farmers to make them unviable to prepare for this. So you'll wipe out parishes, you'll wipe out villages, you'll wipe out townlands, you'll remove people. When you remove people out of that part, you remove people out of small villages, out of small towns, you will close doctor's surgeries, jobs, pubs, schools, GA clubs, and so on. Because when you have massive hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of secret fruit plantations in a county anywhere, and this is where we're going. It's, yeah, it doesn't benefit. Yeah, I mean, a large, large forests don't, they do nothing for an economy of a local community. Correct and right. And the, like, the big problem that is, well, we, like, it's unbelievable that we've agreed, party and government, we've agreed, Minister for Junior Minister for Agriculture, Minister for Forestry, we know that nothing lives in a secret fruit plantation. We know. It's fertilised from the air into straight into water. We know it's sprayed chemicals from the air to prevent disease, disease straight into water. Uh, we know nothing lives, not even an insect lives in it. Um, we know it's highly polluted, the thickest roots, and the pine needles are highly uh, acidic into water, killed fish, etc. etc. And we have 800,000 hectares of that planted already. And we want to go plant more of it. Like, but the, so I, w- I, was read, I was reading that the current... Uh, forest cover in Ireland remains at less than 12% and seemingly that's way below the European average and forests are recognised as being central to our future green economy and a means of increasing carbon capture and of uh, renewable energy sources. Are you saying that we don't need any more afforestation? I'm not. I'm saying whatever forestation. First of all, Seekers Blue Plantation needs to be banned. Secondly, we have planted the wrong tree in the wrong place 
for all these years. We have planted thickest root on bog or peat soil, if you want to call it, now scientifically proven to be the most valuable soil in the world to sequester carbon. Uh, 3% of the soil in the world is peat soil. That 3% absorbs and stores more carbon than all the than twice the amount of trees in the world. That's how valuable bog soil is now. And here we have a situation in Ireland where we have 800 all these trees planted on this bog. It's drying out the bog, whereas the bog it should be absorbing and stored in carbon. Instead of that, because it has been dried out by the trees, it's emitting carbon. It's letting carbon over to the atmosphere. It's a, a, a disastrous failure on the behalf of Hilch and on okay. behalf of the And there is, there is a lot of political opposition, uh, Jerry, uh, to this plan. Uh, and obviously from your the protest that happened yesterday. I mean, I'm assuming you're seeing that same level of protest on the ground all over the country. Oh, my God, of course we are. We have getting telephone. We're getting calls from England and America, never mind from you, Patricia. That's a fact. People are so concerned with this because as the information gets out, like, and as we explain the reality of it, and as I talked about the 1.5 million acres between now and 2050, you see, people know what's going to be. They understand it now. And what should be happening here, you know, we're talking about an 18% cover. But every country is different. The geography of every country is different. And that percentage for a start, number one, should be looked at. Because we have so many small farms. We have so much water. We have so much streams. We have so much lakes. We're different to places like Germany, where you might get 5,000 acres in a farm and have a lake or a river in it. So mm, the like, there's a, a lot of point. things to be looked at. Uh, now, yeah, you, 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 you can't be, compare like with like. Yeah. And how it needs to be done here is that whatever trees we're going to plant, our farmers are going to plant, and farmers were willing to do their part here. They were for climate change and do a bit. But we are advising them to do nothing now. And they're agreeing. But it should be led from communities by farmers, broadleaf trees, which would be a benefit to the economy, walks, etc., whatever. And it should be, of course, from the government, because the farmer gives up, say, five acres of land to plant a broadleaf trees, that is an indefinite service. It's for the rest of his life, and it's for his children or whoever comes after him. So he should be paid for that five acres. While them trees are in the ground, a public good to this state in absorbing and storing carbon. That is where we should be going. And instead of planting thickest fruit, we need to develop the hemp industry. The hemp industry has thousands, even thousands of different uses. It's been developed in many, many countries right all over the world. Why are we not doing this here? Okay. All right. So there's a lot more to go on this. I'm assuming that uh, the the group that has now been set up, uh, Save Our Forest, Save uh, Save Our Land, uh, will be hearing and seeing a lot more from that group, uh, Jerry. You will. The Rural Island Organisation is only about two years old. Um, I was, you know, and we're we're, um, you know, we're 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 known now countrywide at the minute. Uh, we're just building our our our, um, our what is our website at the minute, Patricia. Okay. But anyone that wants or anyone wants to talk to me, they are given, you're feel free to give them my okay. number. Okay, we will we indeed. We will be holding and meetings here, there, and everywhere. And uh, and and, and I have a feeling we'll be speaking again, Jerry. In the meantime, thank you for that, and thanks for joining us on the program. Thank you very much. Good morning to you. Bye bye. Okay. That is uh, Jerry Loftus of the Rural Ireland uh, organisation. He is uh, based in County Mayo. According to data collected by CompleteCar.ie, there is a rural-urban divide when it comes to passing your driving test with the pass rate at some test centres in Cork nearly twice as high as the pass rates in Dublin. To discuss the data, I'm joined by Shane O'Donoghue, who is editor of CompleteCar.ie. Good morning to you, Shane. 
Good morning, Patricia. You are very welcome uh, to the programme. By the way, we've always known in Cork that we're better drivers uh, than uh, people in <laughs> Dublin. Just to put that out there at the start, can you start by sharing some of the figures like the highest pass rate versus the lowest pass rate? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I'd like to say that we didn't compile it ourselves. Okay. The RSA has put this data out, so it's it's very much from an official authority. Um, but regardless, the the highest pass rate is actually very local. It's Ballancolic in Cork. It's seventy five point three percent pass rate, which is actually very very good, especially when the average for the whole country is uh, around fifty three percent. Now. That contrasts then with, as you said, parts of Dublin. There's uh, Mulhuddard in Dublin. There's a couple of centres up there. And they have 43%. Actually, the lowest is 38%, 38.2%. That's a huge... Which is a massive difference. Huge, huge uh, difference. I mean, is it that people who particularly like Ballincollig and there was other parts of Cork uh, did well as well. Now, Skibbereen had a a pass rate of only 43.3%. But is it that people are better prepared when they go for their their test? I think, I mean, it's very hard. We can only only put forward theories really and discuss it. But looking at the data, it's very limited. But it's very difficult to say because what's to say that Ballincollig people are so much better prepared than people in Mulhudder in Dublin? I mean, my theory is a bit different, and it is only a theory, is that some areas um, are, it's easier to pass it in, you know, the road layout, the uh, the junctions, and also perhaps the familiarity of those roads with the, for the people that are going for their tests there. So in Balcolic, perhaps, I mean, to be fair, the Balcolic roads, uh, while it is very busy, the roads are quite sensibly laid out, the junctions and roundabouts, um, it's not a difficult place to get around as a driver, as a new driver specifically. Whereas, um, and you you would expect a lot of people going for their tests there probably know the area, and you know if they've if they've had lessons, the instructor's probably been able to tell them where the tests would be done or roughly. So that helps a lot. Whereas in bigger areas, perhaps like parts of Dublin, um, there you probably have people coming from further away in the city and wouldn't be familiar with the area. It's busier again than Ballincollig. There's a lot more traffic, and the junctions are perhaps slightly trickier. I would say mm. I, I know that area, um, but that is just a theory, really. We don't have anything more than that. Yeah, I, because when I was thinking about somebody, you know, trying to do a test in in Dublin, I mean, a learner driver taking a test, say during rush hour, you can't pick the time that you're going to do your test. That must be a nightmare. Yeah, I, I suspect people try and stay away from doing that. I mean, the problem, of course, depending on where you are, is to just be stop start, and that's that's of no use to anybody. Um, so yeah, there's just generally more traffic in built-up areas, but Ballincollig is busy too. That's yeah, what yeah, that's me a good so point. Much. Yeah, and and but this isn't the first year we've had these res- these results from the RSA. Um, they they are similar to the year before, um, so it's not like they're an anomaly in any way. There's definitely something going on there. I'd really like to see the demographics um, of the people that are passing and failing, etc. I think that might paint a better picture. Is it also down to the testers or do the testers move around from centre to centre? I'm not aware that they move around uh, centre to centre. Um, and if they do, I presume it's only within a certain geographical region. Um, I think that's that's definitely something that needs to be considered. Um, we wouldn't want to criticise uh, testers suggest that some are easier than others and some are harder than others but there is a human factor there 
you know, they, they have certain things they're supposed to be looking out for. They have a checklist effectively and, you know, you get marks if, if you do certain things wrong. Um, but, you know, there's some human interpretation of that. So th- that's certainly a possible factor. Yeah. But but even looking at the fact that the average pass rate across all the centres last year was 53 percent. That means just over uh, one in two people who sat the test passed, which means, you know, nearly nearly half of everyone who took a test last year failed and has to go back and do it again. I mean, I don't know. I haven't we haven't covered it now in quite some time. I don't know what the wait list is like for a driving test, but it's one of those ones that comes up every now and again. Somebody trying to get a driving test and they can't to get one you know in a, in a short uh, time period do we need to look at the whole system i mean why do nearly half why, why is nearly half everybody failing their tests i agree with you i do think we we need to look at the whole system um i don't think we need to make it easier i should point out um, okay definitely not we, you know we need our, our drivers to be safe but people need to be better prepared before they're going for that test one other little detail and i wonder is it captured in that figure is that if you have a provisional license, um, you can hold it for two years and you have to go for a test. However, all you have to have done is applied for a test, got a date. You don't have to turn up and then you can go and get another provisional again. So I wonder are the figures showing that there's a bit of that going on, that are people are only applying for a test because they have to. Um, and then they're just actually not bothering turning up and they're just continuing with the provisional license. That might explain some of the some of the poor data there. That's a really good point. And of course, when we get the figures from the RSA, they don't do a breakdown. They don't say of the failure rate, how many were, well, they weren't technically a failure. The person just didn't show up. Yes, but and again, I think we I'd love to see the detailed data there, but I'm assuming that if you don't turn up, it's counted as a fail. I might yeah. be wrong on that. Yeah, I, I would I as well. Yeah, at. yeah. But yeah, but they're, they're, that's the kind of information uh, we need from the RSA. And then what about nerves? I mean, like Marion has said, would Shane have any advice for somebody who has failed their test? Wait for this now, Shane. Nine times nerves gets oh, the God. better of her every time and she ends up making silly mistakes. She said, I really am a good, safe driver. Never been in an accident. I just can't pass the bloody test. It, but nerve, and, it's and so nerves, hard on people yeah. like that, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I mean, all tests are, are nerve-wracking, um, and and this perhaps more than any. And I, I don't know. The only advice is just to keep get as much practice as you can. Um, you know, it is just a test to get over. And I, I, I would suggest that you, like you alluded to, we we could do a major overhaul anyway while we're testing, um, and preparing people for using the roads rather than passing a test. But I think people need people who are trying to pass the test. They need to practice, practice, practice. There's no substitute for it. Um, and also try and practice in the region of the test centre. You'll be familiar with the roads around there. You know, you're likely to come across the the junctions, etc. That the testers go through. And then practice the manoeuvres, all the the parking, all that. It's just practice. It's the only way to do it. Yeah, and I would also suggest because obviously, if uh, Marion has done it nine times, I would take lessons. Uh, even though she's obviously driving many, many years, but get lessons in advance of the test because, you know, some of the, 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 the driving testers, are the, uh, the instructors, they'll be able to see what the tester is looking for. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. No, regardless of how many times you've gone for a test or how long you have been driving, I would suggest that you definitely need a few refresher lessons just before the test. The, those instructors will pick up on any little things that you might not have realized you're doing that the testers won't like. 
um, and they might give you pointers as well. And it'll also put your mind at ease. It'll help with the nerves. Yeah. And and, and, and I know something we discovered a number of years ago from somebody who'd failed numerous times when I think it was on their fifth time failing. And when they said it to the tester, oh, that's my fifth time failing. The tester said, I wish you told me that at the beginning. So I think make the tester aware that you have failed a number mm. of times and that you are nervous. You know, they're, they're aware of that. I think that's a very good idea, actually. That's a, that's a really good point. And um, your, your listener would do well to listen to that point yeah. rather, rather than rather than trying to fool the tester into, you know, thinking that you're this experienced, brilliant driver. They're humans as well. I mean, they, they, they don't have anything against you. They want to make sure you're a safe driver. Um, but, you know, they're not there to scare you. <laughs> it's not like that. OK. All right. Listen, Shane, thank you for that. And thanks for joining us on the programme. Thanks, Patricia. Good morning to you. That is uh, Shane O'Donoghue and Shane is editor of uh, CompleteCar.ie and I was on the website yesterday. It does exactly what it says on the tin. It's everything to do with uh, cars uh, and driving. It's a fascinating website, CompleteCar.ie. 0818103103. That this made me laugh when, when I mentioned earlier that I was going to be talking about driving tests and says, listening to you there, Patricia, talking to Ken about passing the driving test I was awfully nervous when I was doing mine and I ended up having to do it three times before I finally passed now the first time I failed I was asked to do a three point turn and I did it all wrong so I knew immediately that I had failed <laughs> listen to this and said the second time I did it I got into the wrong car and it was actually a car that was owned by a member of Vanguard the Shia but my keys opened the door of this other car it was only when I sat in I noticed the colour of the seats were red and the colour of my seats were black so that had to be explained to the tester I'm in the wrong car so after that I was just so nervous I really couldn't drive properly guess what I failed the second time third time round though I was lucky I did pass when I came home to my mom she had been praying to St Jude for hopeless cases <laughs> so the prayers paid off and you're good driving and you didn't let the nerves get the better of you thank you for that Anne and Gerard on Twitter at C103 Cork says passing a test is a brain train exercise driving skill is a totally different matter as can be witnessed by poor driving standards on so many of our roads every day. Willie by text and this is to do with people passing their driving test. Willie says I'm originally from Tipperary living in Cork now for the past 19 years and I have never ever seeing driving as bad as present. People driving, not using their indicators, people constantly on their phones, texting and talking. How some of these people ever passed their driving test day one beggars belief. They haven't a clue, if you ask me, says uh, Willie. And how many people will say you'll never drive again the way you drove for your driving test you're extremely careful but then I think probably the longer we're driving some people not everyone some people get really really complacent uh, about it and of course a lot of people would have passed driving tests way before mobile phones ever came out and I have to agree with you Willie I am noticing more and more people particularly when you're parked at traffic lights the amount of people that are on their phones either have their phone up to their ears or you can see them looking at their phone and as for texting while driving I mean it's just completely nonsensical it really is. Thank you for your WhatsApp to 086 
to 103 103. We're going to take a break. We have news at 11 on the way. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. CMIG.ie. You're listening to Cork Today on Replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed. Kathleen has been on and this is to do with prescription uh, drugs. When she got a prescription from her GP, she went along into the chemist and the chemist were giving her a generic version of the drug that she had been prescribed by her doctor. She wasn't happy with that. She wanted the branded one. She had to get on to the GP and the GP has sorted it out and has now written on her, her prescription that her drugs are not to be substituted substitute it so she wanted to make other people aware of this now that's been going on I think for nearly 10 years I remember when that there was a new law actually came in and uh, where the government was allowing pharmacists to substitute different versions of the same prescribed um, medicines if a branded name medicine for example was prescribed by your doctor the pharmacist then could could dispense a generic brand and remember a generic brand does the very same thing it's a it's a substitute it's a cheaper substitute than the named a brand and you'll only be offered a generic drug if it does the exact same job as the one that is on your uh, prescription uh, but if you don't for some reason some people don't like to use the generic brand which as I say is, is always cheaper because it's come off license that's the reason that they're able to offer a generic version of it uh, you can at your doctor's and they'll write on it um, no um, no substitute and I remember at one stage Marsha was on can't you remember what the tablet was for um, but she ended up getting a generic one and the generic tablet was bigger than the brand one that she had been prescribed and I just couldn't she was quite young at the time I just couldn't she was having a problem swallowing the larger tablet so what happened then was the doctor just used to write every time she got a prescription would write on it do not substitute so that's something that you can do you can do with your own doctor but pharmacists yes will offer you the generic one because the generic one is cheaper and obviously they're trying to uh, save you money uh, as well when you're paying for your prescriptions that's as I say that has been going on for quite some time 0818 we discussed Quilta in uh, the last hour and that protest that was held yesterday and objections. Well, I think in the main, the objections are to what Quilta has done with this deal, this contract that they've signed with uh, Gresham House. And a lot of people are not happy with that. But then when we were talking with Jerry Loftus, he's worried about afforestation. He's worried about where all these trees are going to be uh, planted. But we know that planting trees is good and forests are recognised as being central to our future green economy because it's a means of increasing carbon capture and obviously it's a renewable energy source as well. So a listener says, on Quilta and tree planting, I used to live in Perth in Australia and the local government used to do a volunteer tree planting every weekend during winter and winter of course is similar to winter in Australia is springtime over here it was lovely to bring the children and get involved it was run by the city of Stirling in Perth and they provided the baby trees etc you were just asked to bring along your gloves and a sun hat you could go online and see which area and which streets were being done and then just simply tag along a very community and environment conscious and very forward thinking, particularly encouraging children to get involved. No reason why Quilta 
couldn't do something similar here in this country. Think outside the box a little bit. That sounds like a, a wonderful way to get people to plant trees. Uh, thank you for that. Now, we are trying to get on to the NDLS for Kieran, and I'll give this out to see if others are having problems. And especially as we've been talking about the driving test and driving licenses uh, today. Uh, Kieran says, I've been trying to renew my wife's driving license on the NDLS website. I've been trying to do it over the last few days and still today the website is saying license renewal application section is offline for scheduled maintenance. Any possibility you can find out what the situation might be. So we're going to get on to the NDLS just to see because that does happen and, and I accept that websites have to come, off, come offline for scheduled maintenance but it seems to according to Kieran, it seems to be off for a few days and normally they'll do a lot of that scheduled maintenance kind of at night and then you know won't be off and 24 hours usually is the most it's off but if it's been off for a few days there does seem to be something's going on there so we're going to get on to the NDLS and just see has anybody else been having the same problem this is for people trying to renew their license on uh, line some of your thoughts coming into us on Enoch Burke the teacher who is once again turned back up at the school that he's now been dismissed from and he's uh, it's going to be costly for him to turn up to school now 700 euro a day uh, fine Eddie Abandon said that teacher had a contract with the school his contract with the school was to teach if he has his own religious beliefs that's absolutely fine but he must remember he is contracted by the school to teach nothing else and if he can't adhere to that contract, then he's broken it. And hence the reason that he has been dismissed. He needs to remember, as to as everybody, when you go to work, you, you sign a contract and that's the contract you signed day one. His was to, to teach and nothing else. I take it, Eddie, not having sympathy for him. Morning, Patricia. I stand with Enoch. He's entitled to his views and I feel he's been discriminated against as well. People died for their religious beliefs in times gone by. I say fair play to Enoch for sticking with his uh, beliefs well he certainly does seem to have the courage of his convictions because I really thought that when the judge came out yesterday and said if uh, he turns up at the school anytime after two o'clock today it's going to be 700 euro per day now let's wait and see does he leave before two o'clock today but you know I listened to a piece I saw a piece of him talking yesterday outside of the school when he heard about the judge's uh, decision and he seemed quite adamant that it wasn't going to deter him in any way. So let's just uh, wait and see. On modular homes, Martin says, these modular homes that has been discussed this morning, that meeting, by the way, underway now. Um, and John Paul is, was just talking to me during the news. It's unlikely that the meeting is going to be over before the close of business at one o'clock today. So we're going to keep a slot free on Monday morning and we'll certainly get back to see what comes out of the meeting today. But anyway, Martin says, just around the general discussion of modular housing, uh, for Ukrainian refugees and we're told by the OPW they've ordered 700 of them and 700 are going to go into various sites around the country and the long term plan is then that when the war ends and please God that war ends sooner rather than later that uh, the majority of Ukrainian ref refugees will go back I mean that's traditionally what has happened in previous wartime uh, situations that they'll go back home and obviously these modular homes then will become available for uh, social housing that's the long term plan uh, with them Anyway, Martin says on the modular uh, homes, why can we not have these?
these modular homes in every town and every village in Ireland. My daughter and her two-year-old daughter are trying desperately to get a council house and I'm sure they'd love to live in one of these modular homes. Why are the government housing the Ukrainians first and not the Irish? It is a big, big disgrace, Patricia. It's not right. It's inhumane. The government should be looking very closely at their actions. It's all wrong. Look after your own first. That's what my late mother used to always say. And I did ask Tony O'Shea that yesterday. Has the council ever looked at modular uh, homes? There has been talk about them in the past. I mean, before the war in Ukraine uh, started and then there was a renewed emphasis when we, when the government realised that they were going to have to find accommodation for the Ukrainian refugees that were fleeing uh, here but I don't know now we will try and check I don't know if any council local authority has built modular homes to house people on their own housing lists but certainly Tony O'Shea says here in Cork County Council we don't seem to have built any modular homes don't know about the city we'll see if we can find out has any modular homes been built across Cork City and County and I'm talking about building them for social housing for people to take people off the council housing list morning Patricia first of all uh, before anyone presumes I'm racist can I just get it out there and say I'm not racist but I'll tell you what I am Uh, says this listener listening to us in Killarney I'm actually terrified of some of the people that are coming into this country they're coming in without any vetting the people that arrive I feel should be placed in some kind of a holding area in Dublin uh, airport and then when they come in do full vetting and process them there so that we know exactly who's coming into this country and then and only then can they be placed into communities and live next to other Irish people. To tell you the truth, I actually now don't feel safe in my own country anymore. If I was younger, I'd be gone from this country. Australia is where I would go. If you look at Australia, they always seem to put their citizens' safety. seems to be paramount. I'm actually a terrified Irish citizen living in Killarney. God, that's a a desperately sad, isn't it? Desperately sad uh, text. And I know Killarney has taken a huge, I don't know what the actual numbers are now, but they've taken a a huge proportion of uh, not just Ukrainian refugees, but also international, people looking for international protection, people coming from um, all host of uh, different uh, countries. And it's 25% of the beds in Killarney are now gone to are now being used to house refugees, um, not just Ukrainian refugees, but also people seeking international uh, protection. So obviously it's making this listener feel a little bit unsafe, which is unfair if if it's here, if it's her her own hometown. Uh, Morning, Patricia, you were talking about uh, trains. Whatever happened to network catering? They used to provide the full catering service. That was when CIE ran the trains. I think they operated out of Houston Station. Does anybody remember them? Network catering. Might be worth finding out what happened to them. I know people who worked for them over the years, uh, says uh, John. And and was network catering then, was it fully owned by CIE? I mean, that was the point that Thomas Gould made yesterday, that if Irish Rail can't get a private company to come in and operate the contract for it, then should they start employing their own people and set up their own business uh, instead. Hi, Patricia, this is on the driving test. Pat uh, reckons with so many people passing and failing their driving test, 
could it just be a money racket to get more money out of people because of course you have to pay every time you sit your driving uh, test hi Patricia when I passed my driving test in Mallow a number of years ago I reversed up onto a footpath and I asked can I do that part again and the driver said why anyway Patricia I passed the test maybe he didn't realise you'd driven up onto the footpath it was a guy from the RSA who was the tester he never even looked at the mark sheet all he said was drive on uh, I did drink a whole bottle of the back rescue repetition before the test. Listen, North Cork listener, I took that. No, I didn't drink a bottle of it. I took that. I find that rescue remedy uh, great, but you don't drink a bottle of it. You've got a few drops on your tongue. It's meant to calm you down. And listen, I, and I don't know if it's a placebo effect or not, but I've certainly used it before. And I know I did. I exactly did that. I think it was 10 drops you had to put on your tongue. And that's what I did before my driving test as well. Did it work or not? I don't know. But yes, I did pass first time round. And Martin in Fomoy says there are drivers in Fomoy, men and women, who should never be behind the wheel of a car. They just don't know how to drive. They haven't a clue what to do, particularly when the lights turn green. Also, some driving at night without their proper lights on. How these people ever passed their driving test, says Martin, is beyond me. And another one, all the people uh, on their phones while driving. It's a common thing here in Fomoy to do this. I've had some very close near misses and all I could do is laugh. <laughs> oh, sorry, that is a Martin. That's a local uh, Fomoy uh, resident. Well, I don't know if I had a close shave. Would I actually be laughing? I had a close shave actually the other day. I was coming out of a junction and the lights were green. I turned green, but somebody coming the other way and I did, I could see the whites of her eye. It was an elderly lady. She obviously decided I'll make it across the junction. It was down at the, the bridge in Mallow, which is a very busy junction. She decided she would make it across before the lights for me coming over the bridge was going to go green. Oh my God, talk about slapping on the brakes. And it was a near, that was a near miss. I certainly wasn't laughing. I could feel my heart pounding. And I looked at the poor woman as if to say, it's okay, it's okay. Because I'm sure she got an awful fright as well. 0818 103 103. John Paul, taking your calls. C103 Jobs. Community employment positions are available in Ballancolic. It's for drivers, maintenance and general operatives. You email marguerite at westgatefoundation.ie. Pat Enright, Glass and Glazing in Mallow. They are looking for window fitters and general labourers. Call 022-504-50. Er, an early years educator with QQI Level 5. That's required for Bantir Community Childcare. CVs please to mary at bantirchildcare.ie. And ward personnel are recruiting construction labourers ground workers, machine drivers and all types of carpenters. You can call them at 021-233-9120. You'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Promoter, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. Now recently an Australian podcast went up online. It's under the series Stuff the British Stole. And one of the stories outlined how a chalice with North Cork origins ended up in the 
the Victoria and Albert Museum in London, where it still is to this day. Cork North West Dáil Deputy Michael Moynihan is now calling on the government to begin discussions with the UK to kindly return the Mount Keefe chalice to its rightful home. And Deputy Michael Moynihan uh, joins me. Good morning to you, Michael. Good morning, Patricia. And now, I listened with great interest to this podcast. Have you listened? Have you listened to the podcast? Yes, well I worth have. the well worth the listen. I suppose for people who know nothing about the uh, Mount Keefe Chalice, just give us a bit of a history lesson. Firstly, about the early days and, and what's known about the early days. It dates back to the 16th century. Well, absolutely. It is understood that it was made in 1590 by a Charles O'Keefe, that's the inscription on it, a C. O'Keefe. It's understood that it's Charles O'Keefe that, that got it made. And this chalice was used uh, during penal times when masses were not allowed to be said and that there were uh, vigorous pursuit of anyone that was saying masses. And then, you know, there used the various mass rocks all over uh, the countryside, not alone just the Duhalla region, but the countryside. But then uh, there were two priests that were uh, murdered in... Um, in your market and this chalice was buried prior to they being captured and there is a gap I suppose in where the chalice was for almost 200 years and then the, the chalice shows up again or is reputed to be documented from the 1860s onwards and uh, then it was auctioned in 1915 uh, you know there's a dispute about how it came into certain ownership in the late 1800s but it, I suppose the facts we have is that there were it was auctioned in 1915 and uh, then it went from there and has ended up in the uh, Victorian and Albert Museum in London it's a hugely uh, I suppose decorative piece of work it's a chalice I suppose it has huge historical connotations of this huge historical significance around that time. But uh, I suppose in a lot of the history that is uh, unearthed over recent years, you know, a lot of uh, rural communities have a whole lot of uh, important historical incidents that have taken place. And I feel that a lot of that is being lost. And that, you know, some people have a hugely important... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. And there are one or two people in each community. And the people of Newmarket and the entire Duhalla region, you know, have a huge debt of gratitude to Raymond O'Sullivan for the information he has. And there are many more historians around the place that have uh, correlated information. And, you know, I deeply, you know, I I, I have great sense of, of regret when I see some of it lost. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And is it more of historical importance than 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 financial worth? Well, I, I think you know it's in a museum in in London. It was clearly a product of Ireland. It was made in uh, commissioned, as I understand it, by Charles O'Keefe, who was residing in the market in the Greater Duhalla region. And I think that you know our history. Why should our history be? Uh, it, on display in a museum in London. Why isn't it back in Cork? Why isn't it back in our own community? Because we have huge uh, historical significance. You know, even uh, you know some of the local songs, and uh, you know that they, they go back to that time and they go back to incidents that took place and the, the you know the, the huge challenges that were there for the uh, during uh, the, that period of penal law where people were trying to profess a religious uh, their religion, their Catholic religion, and they were being pursued or. And, you know, all of that, a lot of that history, you know, is, you know, in one or two chapters, which is, it's vast, it's very, there's a huge amount of it that's being lost. And I think that this chalice, when I heard about this chalice, and I said, look, that is something that is very important. It is a significant, uh, I suppose, to that period, to the penal laws, it's also significant to what happened locally. And... Why shouldn't it be returned? And I think that we should be looking for uh, these uh, pieces of our history to be returned so that the people of the area can, um, you know, that they can understand where they come from and they can understand the historical significance of it. OK, now the the London, that museum, Victoria and Albert Museum, will say, look, we went to auction in 1929. We bought it fairly and squarely. I think they bought it for £400 at the time, which I'm told is about €25,000. Uh, in today's money. Uh, if they were to give it back, do we have to financially compensate them? Well, I suppose therein lies a very significant debate, right? Uh, you know, how did it end up in the Victorian Albert Museum? Like, was it originally stolen from Ireland? It was taken from us. I don't think that when it was taken at the very, very start that anybody was paid for it. I think it was stolen and then it disappeared and then it was, uh, you know, at various stages over 400 years where was the ownership of it. But the legitimate ownership of it, we could contend as the Irish people and the people of Duhalla. And I think that, you know, they could... I, I think to bring a holistic approach to history and to have an understanding of it, they have to say, yes, it was belonging to the people of the Duhalla region or Mount Keefe or Newmarket and that it should be returned there so that the people of that area, like if you were, how many people will walk through the Victoria and Albert Museum on a even in the course of the year, they would have heard of Mount Keefe or Newmarket or County Cork. No one, no one, no one, yeah. no one. Only people from the area. And is is it true that the the, the two priests that were that were murdered in uh, s- uh, around 1680? There's actually a stone mark in the spot where they died. Is that? Well, that's what I that's what I'm led to believe. Exactly where they were murdered, uh, there's a stone still there. And 
you know, a lot of that oral history of something significant happening and that there was a stone rocky. In my experience over the years, an awful lot of that turns out to be actually accurate and truthful. And like sometimes there is cynics and they dismiss it, but a lot of the information on different. But I think that that it is marking it in uh, the the spot where uh, they were uh, murdered. And I suppose that and the chalice and you know the whole historical significance of it. I think it is important that that is recognised and that it is important that it is documented and that it is within our own community as well, within the New Market and the, the Duhalla region, so that, you know, there's an awful lot of people that would be looking for that kind of information for the Duhalla region, any of the of the uh, Facebooks that they have people coming from Australia and America and all over trying to trace their families back. But they'd also like to see what was the historical significance of all parts of the world, mm. which there is a lot of. Yeah, yeah, and if and is is it up to the our national museum to contact the Victorian Albert Museum and get into some kind of negotiations? I don't know how this works. Well, it, it, that is it, like that's the is the protocol in it, right? We could go over and we could knock on the door and say, you know, give us back our channel this belongs to the people of Duhalla. But if we have to go through the proper channels, I suppose the reality is that the museum, the uh, the the Irish government uh, should make the initial and you know go through the proper channels to ensure that we can get it back. But I, I think you know it, it would be museum to museum or department of heritage to department yeah, of heritage. Yeah, I uh, did. I'm sure I read somewhere that when um, you know it's been drawn to the the attention of the Victoria and Albert Museum that we want our chalice back. I'm I'm sure I read somewhere that they've offered uh, they've they, they would get into negotiations to loan the chalice to us. Yeah, <laughs> that's, well, that's I, that I, not good enough for you. Well, I, I suppose you know the question there is: Are we are they loaning something to us that is already ours? And like there is there is a question on that. But like you know, uh, there's a fundamental question on that. Like this was an Irish chalice, chalice and it ended up uh, in the Victoria Museum in London. You know how it got there is is a matter of dispute that I would contend. But at the end of the day, I do think that if negotiations were proper, that we should uh, get it back and have it within our own community, within our own country. It is, uh, you know, by any stretch of the imagination, it is a fine piece of work that was done in the 1500s. It's, it, it is a beautiful, and has survived 400 years, is a beautiful piece, of, of, I suppose, of, of, uh, of history. And very and much part of our history. Very much very, part, very part of and I, I can I can see a lot of people are saying well done for raising this issue, including Jim to say uh, say hi Patricia. It's all the more galling for this chalice to be in England when it was made as a result of what the English did to the Irish people, stopping them saying mass and practicing their own religion, and to think that two priests were murdered as a result. So it should rightfully be returned to Newmarket, and that's my final question to you. If we did get it back, where would you like to see it put well, on display, I, Michael? I, 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 I would certainly love to see it in Cultura in Newmarket. Yeah. I think it would be, I, I think, you know, in Newmarket, uh, and there's, there's a huge amount of history 
within the new market region going back over the centuries. And a lot of it, you know, a lot of it, uh, individuals have it. Raymond has a huge amount of it, which we are eternally grateful for him to share it. But there's a huge amount of it that is lost as well and should be uh, brought into fore because people love that information and document it. But that's what I would love if, if it were possible. But certainly I would be talking to, to Steve Parkman. But if it was to be uh, returned to Ireland, obviously it's a very valuable charity, you know, security and everything else. But I would love to see it in Newmarket. Okay. All right. Listen. And Michael, we leave it there. Thank you for that. And uh, thanks uh, for joining us. That is uh, Deputy uh, Michael Moynihan. And it is uh, deemed one of Ireland's oldest religious artefacts. Actually, the notes, I was looking, trying to get some information on it uh, yesterday. The notes that go with the chalice, if you go into the V&A Museum in uh, London, says this chalice is grand in proportion for a large congregation and is engraved with the crucifix and the instruments of the passion, objects associated with Christ's suffering and crucifixion and then it's inscribed in Latin C-O-K had me made in the year of the Lord 1590 that's how we know how old the chalice is and the C-O-K of course refers to Charles uh, O'Keefe Earlier this week we were congratulating Toher National School in Dumanway because we discovered they had won first prize for design in a nationwide 3D printing challenge and will now go forward to represent Ireland in a European showcase. So to fill us in on what exactly they've achieved, I'm joined by Richard Swan, who is one of the teachers behind the uh, project. Good morning to you, Richard. Morning, Patricia. You're Thanks ver- for having me on. Well, you're very welcome. And firstly, congratulations to, to everybody in the school. It's a, it's a fantastic achievement. But to get the background here, in order to take part, you and another teacher, Helen O'Connell, who I think is the principal, is she? That's, that's Helen right. You, you had to go away and upskill in 3D design and printing. Tell me about that. That's correct. Um, well, we, we had established coding and robotics here in the school for a number of years. And we thought that uh, 3D design and printing will be the next logical step. So luckily, a course came up in Cork, up in the Lifetime Lab, and myself and Helen O'Connell were able to attend. Uh, It was a fantastic course. It was funded by EIT Manufacturing and supported by iFarm and UCD and Stryker. So um, we learned about CAD design and 3D printing and the many applications it could have in the primary school classroom. And the plus to it was, you got a loan of a 3D printer, wasn't it? Well, that was, that was brilliant. Um, we've got a lo- long-term loan of a 3D printer. All the schools that participated got a loan of a 3D printer. So then you came back with, yourself and Helen came back with all the skills you'd learned and the 3D printer under your arm, and you yep. went back into the classroom. What then did you ask the, what were the school children then asked to do? Well... First, we, we started to learn about 3D printing and CAD design. And then we were asked to participate in a 3D printing challenge and with a sustainability theme. So the children need to identify something in the school or their home that required fixing or improving. Of course, they came up with many fantastic ideas. But uh, then we heard that we were getting new lockers for the school and the children settled on the idea of key holders for the lockers. So they then had to start from scratch and design, well, they, design them. Yeah, they didn't want just an ordinary key box. They wanted something unique for the school. Okay. That was, that was a bit of fun. All children like have a bit of fun. So two ideas quickly became the favourites. 
one featured the school crest and the other was based around the popular computer game. And both ideas were so good that we decided we'd print both ideas because we two sets of lockers. So they'd get busy then designing and you have to solve design issues. It's very important. Something that looks good on paper is often not very practical and in real life may be difficult to manufacture. Then they had to create prototypes using recycled materials. And again, there was more redesign involved in that. And then it was on to the CAD drawings. It's on the CAD drawings, we could do some quick prints just to see how things were, were looking. Yeah. And then finally, when we, we were happy with our final designs, we printed our two uh, key holders. And, and I've seen the video. They're excellent. Well, all the, that videoing was going on while during the design stage and during the print stage because uh, because we had to put forward that video. But uh, when we're looking at the clips afterwards, the group I have now, they're a particularly creative crowd, and they wanted, they wanted to tell a story more than just present the project. So they wanted to bring in a bit of acting, <laughs> and we, they even managed to work in a little bit of comedy. They yeah, did a fantastic it's, job. It's, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. And I, would, I, would, I would direct anyone to go to your website to see it. It's only about two and a half minutes long. Well, well oh. worth watching. It's, it's excellent and really well uh, uh, put together. And obviously, I, Richard, the children have gained so much from this experience. And, and this is on the start because this is the start of our journey. There, there are thousands of tutorials online. Uh, it will add to our science, history, geography. There's there's so much we'll be able to do. So you, that video that I watched online, was that, yeah. is that what you submitted for the judging? That's, that's what we submitted with a bit of paperwork. Okay. And that was judged then by I Farm and Stryker. And which was nice, we, we won a thousand euro voucher, but the children are really looking forward to going up to Stryker's facility in Cork. We're going to get a tour of their facility and they'll get to see 3D design and 3D printing at work in a manufacturing brilliant. setting. Brilliant. It, it really is brilliant. And how, di how did you find out that you'd won? Was it an email or was it a phone call? Uh, we were invited to a webinar. All the participating schools were invited to a webinar and uh, we were fortunate. We came out the winner. And did you think you were in with a chance or what was your thought pattern when you sat down at the webinar? It's very difficult to know. It was our first time doing this, this and I thought our video was very good. Yeah. Uh, no, I thought the, the, the children made a, a great job of the video. Um, it was all then down to the strength of our project. And, yeah. That's brilliant. Uh, you came out on top. And is, um, am I right in saying you, you now go forward to a European leg of the competition? That, that's right. Next week, um, there'll be a, a European showcase. Now, again, I'm not quite sure. I know we're invited to a webinar again. Okay. And... Uh, We'll be finding out more, I'm sure, next okay. week. Let us, let us know. We'll keep our fingers crossed for you in, in that. And tell me, Richard, a little bit about uh, the school, um, uh, Toher. On paper, it looks like Toker, but it's actually pronounced Toher. And yes. it is, uh, where, where in Domanway is it? We're north of Domanway. North of Domanway. What size school are you? Uh, we're a small rural school, uh, three teachers. Um, we've been very involved, really, in... in uh, digital and robotics and coding for the last number of years. We were far through there. We got involved with the School Excellence Digital Initiative that the Department of Education started. And this allowed us to get a, a wide range of coding and robotic equipment that we've, we've established throughout the school from four-year-olds to six-class. From four-year-olds? From four 
Yeah, from junior infants up to sixth class. Goodness and me. So we've been working on that for the last three or four years. And I suppose 3D printing and CAD design, that, that was the next step. So. And can you already see some of the older children, the fifth and the sixth class pupils who will be leaving you soon enough? Can you already see them having careers? I, I imagine so. Yeah. I mean, technology is advancing so quickly these days. As they say, the jobs they have haven't been heard of yet. Even invented, yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. Okay. These, are, these are skills they're going to need. Yeah, yeah, it is indeed. Well done, well done. You're very proactive for a small uh, rural school. It is terrific. So once again, congratulations to everyone at Toher National School in Domamwe. And Richard, thank you for taking time out to talk to us. Thank you very much, Patricia. Good morning to you. Bye-bye. Richard Bye-bye. Swan there, uh, one of the teachers behind that uh, project. But it's a terrific achievement, as I say, for a small rural school. You're listening to Cork Today on Replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed. I meant to say, because I heard it earlier on the 10 o'clock uh, death notices, and then I went out of my mind. Uh, I meant to say, just, just pass on deepest sympathies to the O'Keefe family with the news of the death of Professor Michael uh, O'Keefe. And of course, uh, Michael O'Keefe, a native of uh, North Cork, and his brother uh, is Ned O'Keefe, a uh, well known former politician in the area. So many people will be aware of the uh, O'Keefe family. And funny, we were talking about the O'Keefe uh, chalice uh, only today on the programme. But uh, Michael O'Keefe was really a trailblazer when it came to ophthalmology services in uh, Ireland. And I saw, for example, the National. Council for the Blind saying how saddened they were to hear of the passing of Professor Michael uh, O'Keefe. They say he was a leader in ophthalmology in Ireland and he was a fantastic advocate for all people who were blind or were vision impaired and he is going to be remembered certainly for many, many years uh, to come. And he was one of those like truly pioneering uh, ophthalmology uh, surgeons and extremely generous uh, with his time. And actually because of uh, Professor Michael O'Keefe, there was a lot of premature babies who would be living life with blindness today only for the pioneering work that he did in a lot of the maternity hospitals and maternity hospitals in, in uh, Dublin. And I know also he was a brilliant advocate for common sense solutions in the health service. I mean, he was really, I've heard him being interviewed a number of times and he was always a breath of fresh air. And I don't know if I ever interviewed him. I have vague recollections that I may have interviewed him many, many years ago, but he was one of those ones who just, while he, you know, he worked as a consultant, but he just had a very common sense approach to our health service. And God knows with everything that's going on in our health service at the moment, at times you think, why isn't there a bit of common sense in the midst of it all? So as I say, our deepest, deepest sympathies to all the O'Keefe family on the passing of Professor Michael O'Keefe. Uh, may he rest in peace. And actually just staying on health I- issues and a bit of a common sense approach. Dan has been on by text to say, Hi Patricia, with the disastrous health situation, hospitals, overcrowding, not enough doctors, would it be possible to find out what percentage of the HSE budget actually goes on nurses, doctors, cleaners, porters, etc.? I bet that a big proportion goes to overpaid management who don't earn their colossal salaries and benefits. That's from uh, Dan. Now, I don't and I, I don't know and I'm open to correction. I don't ever think the HSE, while they'll say overall how much their wage bill is, they'll say for commercial reasons as well, that you won't get a detailed breakdown as to how much each individual gets. The, cl- the latest set of figures I can find uh, was an article that I read from the journal from the summer of last year. 
and they were talking about the number of employees working in the HSE who were in excess of a half a million euro and it actually doubled uh, last year. Now, the majority who are earning in excess of half a million euro, in fairness, are hospital consultants. Like they spoke about one hospital consultant being paid three quarters of a million euro, 750,000 euro. This was in uh, 2021. Paul Reid now was mentioned. He was the chief executive at the time. He received 430,000 euro. Now that was a basic of 360,000 and then you take in things like he had um, allowances, he had benefit in kind for a company car and then there was a large uh, proportion of the allowances went to his pension uh, contribution. But the figures, as I say, that came out in the middle of... is it the middle of last year yeah the middle of 2022 but it would have been for 2021 the figures showed that the number of HSE staff on earnings over 100,000 rose by 10% where it so 3,988 people within the HSE earned over 100,000 but it doesn't give unfortunately it doesn't give a breakdown on how many of them are doctors nurses consultants porters kitchen staff uh, etc and I don't know I'll, I'll, I'll check and see I don't know if I've ever seen those kind of figures in that kind of detail Dan that you're looking at I know what you're talking about you're very much and there will be a number of people will agree with you that there are too many what we refer to as pen pushers too many people working in admin too many people working in management enough not enough boots on the ground we constantly hear that argument when people talk about our health service and then I was talking about modular homes earlier on Michael says how are you Patricia I think I read somewhere that a study shows that a very high percentage of the unfortunate Ukrainians who've had to flee their country because of war will never return to their home country as the infrastructure will be destroyed it will be impossible this is therefore a long-term issue says Michael and I'm assuming Michael was responding to me saying that the modular homes that will be used for Ukrainians were told by the OPW when the Ukrainians go home those modular homes then can be used for uh, social housing now I know this study that you are referring to uh, Michael it was earlier this uh, week it was actually a briefing document that was given to Simon uh, Harris uh, when they were looking at the the whole situation with the Ukrainian refugees and how long would they be would they be staying here, and government officials, what they've worked out is they reckon that as many as sixty percent of Ukrainians who are in Ireland at the moment will remain after the war. Now, what are they basing those figures on? The estimates are based on the number of people who were displaced during the Bosnian War back in the nineteen nineties. Now, back in the nineteen nineties, there was one point two million recorded refugees from Bosnia at the time. Now that was between 1992 and 1994. 40% repatriated back to their own home while the remainder stayed in the first host country or they moved on to a, a different country. So they're basing it on those figures. Now while the legal basis under which temporary protection is being offered was the result of the Balkan experience, they, they, they say they can't assume that all Ukrainians will wish to immediately return home when the conflict ends. Now at the moment there's about 70,000 Ukrainians have already arrived in Ireland and the expectation is that the same number will come again this year. So by the end of this year, there could be 150,000 Ukrainians living uh, in uh, Ireland. But they simply don't know. I mean, it really is a guessing game. As I say, they based it looking at other countries where the Bosnians fled to. Now, there was, there was I don't know how many Bosnians came to uh, Ireland. It wasn't a huge number. It certainly, certainly was nothing like the number of Ukrainians uh, that are here. 
if you speak to Ukrainians, their wish and their will is to go straight home. But I absolutely accept the point that Michael is making, the infrastructure, you know, how do you go home to a home that isn't there? So, I mean, a lot of money, as always happens after war situation, that's why the sooner it ends, the better. A lot of money will be poured into Ukraine to build back up the uh, infrastructure. I think a lot will go back. A lot will go back because you've got to remember women and children who fled have left fathers, husbands, sons, brothers. You know, they've left their men folk in the majority of cases. They've left their men folk uh, behind them and their lives are back in uh, Ukraine. I mean, we would have seen that on all previous wars, even after the Second World War. Uh, people would have, you know, refugees would have fled a proportion. Don't go back for sure. Will it be as high as 60%? Only time will tell. Literally, only time uh, will tell. 0818103103. And I want to give a quick shout out to Michael, who was on to us. Where's Michael's text from Bantry? Thanks for this, Michael. I mentioned about St. Bridget's uh, Crosses earlier on when I was talking with Ken. And of course, next Wednesday is St. Bridget's Day. And if you would like to learn how to make your own St. Bridget's Cross, then there is an event happening in Bantry Library next next Monday from 10 o'clock you'll get one-on-one help to make your own St Bridget's Cross Uh, you simply can pop into or give Bantry Library a call on 027 50460 and ask for Geraldine and the idea is that they'll they'll do one-on-one every quarter for an hour they reckon it takes about 15 minutes learning from scratch how to make a St Bridget's Day Cross so ask for Geraldine if you'd like to go along on Monday from 10 o'clock to uh, Bantry Library. I know other libraries were doing that in the past. I remember having somebody who was going into Mallow Library many years ago and she came into studio to help us make St Bridget's Crosses. I made a dog's dinner of mine. I didn't. I don't know what I was doing, but it turned out looking nothing like a St Bridget's Day Cross. I wasn't very good at it. And I know she was going on to the library that day. So I don't know if every, if other libraries are doing it as well. If any other library is arranging for St Bridget's Crosses to be made, let us know because people um, still have a keen interest uh, in them. But Bantry Library definitely doing it next uh, Monday from 10 o'clock. 0275 The C103 Cork Diary. With Cork County Council delivering roads and housing, community and business supports all across the county. See corkcoco.ie. Kaylee sets are going on in the Marion Hall in Ballinhasic tonight. That's at half past nine. Music is by Ger Murphy, admission 10 euro, and it does include teas. Bingo is going on in Mallow GAA Complex at tonight, 8.15, with a jackpot of four. 4,700 euro and Kildare Bingo is also on tonight 8 o'clock in the store at the Creamer Yard doors open at 7 and their jackpot is 1,300 uh, euro and an afternoon tea dance in Gagan Community Hall will be held next Sunday from 3pm to 6pm music is by Declan Anger you can enjoy a welcome cuppa and goodies at the break plenty of car parking spaces as well and the Lakela Mallow Men's Shed. They're holding their annual Flag Day tomorrow in Mallow Town. You're asked to please support this community group in the great work that they do throughout the year. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. For motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. See mig.ie. 
This is Cork Today on C103. Email Patricia now with your story or comment. Cork Today at C103.ie. And Patricia in Formoy by text said she would willingly donate 20 euro if they set up a fundraiser to bring back the uh, O'Keefe chalice uh, back to uh, Ireland. Yeah, because I don't know. I mean, it's one of the points that I made uh, to Michael, Deputy Michael Moynihan when I was speaking with him. I mean, the V&A, the Victorian Albert Museum in London will say, look, we bought that in auction in good faith and they paid, I think it was £400. It's the equivalent of about €25,000 uh, uh, today. So they'll say, and that's what they are saying, that they bought it in good faith. So even if they decided that they were going to return it, would they look for financial compensation? And I'm sure if they did look for financial compensation and a fundraiser was to start, I'm sure people like Patricia would possibly uh, donate. But there's no fundraiser at the moment, Patricia. But we'll keep you posted if that actually changes. Thank you for your text to 086 103 103. Now a rally was held on the Grand Parade yesterday afternoon and it is to show refugees in this country that they are welcome in Cork. It was organised by a group called International Community Dynamics who say the vast majority of Irish people are welcoming of those who come here seeking international protection. We sent our reporter uh, Mareda Tuig along to uh, the rally uh, to tell us how it all went. Say it loud, say it clear. Refugees are welcome here. My name is Rose Lamol. I'm the CEO and founder of International Community Dynamics. And we're organising this uh, this rally against uh, the right wing and, and the anti-refugee sentiments that are being uh, spread these days. Yeah, It's spreading all over Ireland. You've probably seen all the protests, uh, people being misinformed and, and and coming up blaming housing crisis and everything else on, on refugees, which is not fair. It's not fair on the refugees and it's also uh, causing a lot of fear, uh, not only in the hotels where they were protesting, but everywhere and also in the hotels here in Cork. Uh, not hotels, uh, direct provision centres here. Uh, people are worried and uh, I think we need to show them that the majority of Irish people are behind them and, and, and support them. How, how does it make refugees feel? Have they been confiding in you and telling you? Well, they're shocked, you know, uh, especially I, I have one uh, who is on our board of management. We work, so half of our board are refugees and uh, our volunteers as well live in that provision still. And um, they've shocked because he said, I thought I came to Ireland because it's known for protecting human rights. And he said, I looked through my window, he sent me a video from Ballymun when they were protesting there. And he said, I'm so shocked, Rose. And the way this, they frighten mothers and children is just horrendous. So, uh, and, and here as well, we have some people here from Direct Provision here in Kinsale Road. They're very worried, they're very worried. And their children are asking, when are they coming to us, you know, this year as well. So we have to make sure that they know that it is a minority, uh, a loud minority, but we can be loud as well if we want to. My name is Michelle. I think it's very important uh, that people speak out. Um, we're very lucky in Ireland. Their right has never taken a particularly strong hold. We are seeing a change in that, and I think it's very important not to have more angry shouting people, but just to showcase that the people who are outside direct provision or 
accommodation centres and who are scaring families. Um, this is not all Irish people and that there is support out there. I personally think that uh, protest is supposed to be aimed at people in power or people who have the power to change what you want changed. Anyone who is in those centres did not choose to be there. The state has chosen for them to be there. Um, and I, for me, that is not protest. I think it's just blatant racism, to be honest. And some of the things that are being said through the gates, um, for me, would definitely come under hate speech. And I feel that it's not fair that it hasn't been enacted. And I think I'm very proud of the laws that we have around that stuff in this country. The Cork that, uh, that I grew up in and the Cork that I know um, are an understanding, are welcoming people um, and communities across the city um, the ones that always have their hands open. Uh, I, I have a personal story. My my mom came from, and her family came from Belfast in the late 60s from the Troubles. And when they came to Cork, they, came, they were considered refugees, you know. And I suppose if I fast forward to today, my aunts and uncles are leaders in a community, you know. So this is what we can achieve by giving people, and whether you're refugees or whether you're Irish, we want to give everybody hope. We want to give that opportunity, and I think when we work together, we'll achieve that. And I can understand people's frustrations, but I think we need to be very clear of where we direct our frustration. Um, I think, you know, hating is just the wrong thing to do. You know, we, we, we don't need that. The people that have come to our country have come for very good reasons, and the people living within our country that are frustrated need to be understood as well. But there are actions that we can do to address those issues with regards housing, with vacant properties, with dereliction, with boarded-up council houses. Let's use that anger and that frustration and let's change that. Let's get those houses back open. Let's introduce taxes that, that tax the hoarding. But let's not hate one another because I just think that achieves nothing. We're better, we're stronger together and that's, that's the anger we're coming from and that's what we want to achieve. Better and stronger together. Thank you for that. That air was Murray Tuick covering that rally that was held yesterday on the Grand Parade in Cork to show refugees that they are welcome here in Cork. Uh, John in Cove, when I mentioned about that briefing document that was given to Simon Harris uh, last week that shows it could, they, they've no way of knowing, but as many as 60% of, of Ukrainians who arrive in Ireland seeking refuge from the war could remain here after the war uh, ends. And as John says, we don't we won't don't know for sure, but he reckons many of them will decide to settle, particularly, particularly those that are allocated homes. They've all been given PPS a number so that it will settle into communities and they may decide to stay in Ireland for a better life. So we can't go ahead thinking that all of them will return when the war uh, ends again, says John. Ireland needs to plan ahead for this eventuality if 60% uh, do decide to stay. And I think that has got a lot to do with why that briefing document was given to uh, Simon Harris when he took over the responsibility for the justice portfolio in recent weeks I think it's got a lot to do with planning and rather than saying oh we didn't know we didn't think that many was going to stay so a briefing document has been given to them to say look this is what you need to plan for so let's uh, wait and see and you're you're right about PPS numbers I know the last figure that we had before Christmas like 14,000 Ukrainians that have arrived in this country are already at work some part time some full time I know a lot of the mothers with young children would love to be out working but can't because unfortunately there's this childminding issue with their children but anyone that's free and available for work a lot of them are 
already working. 0818103103. Now, I didn't see this. Is anybody watching Nationwide last night? Anne was. And she said, it made me so sad to sit down and watch Nationwide, the programme on TV last night. I can't understand what us, the lovely Irish compassionate people, have come to. I was looking at two people in wheelchairs. They're waiting months upon months for repairs, bearing in mind that these wheelchairs are their only mode of transport, especially the young lad who was saying that the chair was his legs. I actually felt ashamed to be Irish, said Anne, uh, watching it. Now, I didn't, I didn't see it, but I did see something on the paper this morning of a little lad in a wheelchair, so I'm assuming there was a follow-on uh, for it. But yeah, when um, and that little lad is right. If you are permanently in a wheelchair, then your wheelchair is your legs and it's, it is your mode of getting around and making you independent and getting you from A to B. And if repairs need to be done, then can we please organise to have those repairs done immediately? And we were talking about catering on the trains yesterday. That's led to John, uh, John Paul saying, like, we're, we're hearing from Irish Rail that they're having problems getting a new contractor to take over the contract. It was really Gourmet had been doing it prior to the pandemic. Then obviously the catering stopped after the when the pandemic started. And then when catering was allowed back on to the trains, Rail Gourmet said that they were having a problem trying to get staff, that they had staffing uh, issues. They also said they had significant additional costs. And because of that, they terminated their Irish Rail terminated the contract uh, with Rail Gourmet. And they failed to get anybody since, even though I did see in the echo during the week that they reckon they're close to some of the trains, not all of them, some of the trains having catering services. But a number of people are pointing out you can go from Cork to Dublin and then you get off that train and you can get on to a train, I think that goes out of Connolly, doesn't it? And go from Dublin to uh, Belfast. And when you get on that train, you get full catering. What is that all about? Well, Irish Rail point out that the catering services, that's the train is called the Enterprise Dublin to Belfast, is under a separate contract and it is with a group called Corporate Catering Services Limited and they're continuing to operate that on a limited basis. I wonder, could Corporate Catering Services Limited, whoever they are, are they uh, an Irish company or are they are they based Northern Ireland or are they based here in the Republic? I wonder, could they be asked to take a look at the Irish Rail and see if they could do, if they're able to do it on the Enterprise from Dublin to Belfast, could they start doing it on the trains around the country? Uh, wouldn't that be great? 0818103103. I mentioned St. Bridget's Crosses. Thank you to, there isn't a name on this, but make, this is from somebody who sent me in a screen grab from Cork County Council's Library and Arts Service. Oh, it's for you, Declan Hardy. Thank you, Declan. Make a St. Bridget's Cross in Dunmanway Library on next Tuesday. So Bantry Library is on Monday. Dunmanway Library is on Tuesday half past 11 in the morning you book your time slot by calling Dunmanway Library 023-88-55411 or you can email dunmanway.library at corkcoco.ie Okay, so I take it as I mentioned had happened in the past that a number of libraries are organising for people to come in experts to come in and show you how to actually make a St Bridget's cross or check in with your local library 0818 103 103 John Paul's taking your calls you can text or WhatsApp 0862 103 103. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. This is the Court Today replay on C103.
Mark Malone, our movie reviewer, joins me uh, this afternoon. Good afternoon, Mark. Hi, and you're very welcome. Now, I'm excited about this because it was only last night you went along to see this on Colleen Kuhn and we were talking about it earlier in the week because, of course, it has been nominated for an Oscar. And you also saw a movie called I Love My Dad. Now, I have a trailer of on Colleen Kuhn. I have to say, embarrassingly, my Irish isn't great. Uh, is this all Oscar? Not all of it. Not no. all of it. Oh, OK, here we go. How long should they keep her? Till after the baby? She can't take it for as long as they like. Well, Iach, Erin Galin, sir. Shasamach, good hour to me, splech a carter. Can work her. She laid you a house and home. Oh, don't we all eat in spurts, same as we grow? We'll keep the child gladly. A yawn, ha, quite a ha, boo. Isn't your mammy good to you? Colleen Kuhn and Colleen Kena. Does she made this god here all? Uh, I have to say, I love um, uh, Carrie Crowley when she's speaking in Irish. It's the Irish I didn't language. realize she was an actress, to be brutally oh, honest with yeah, you. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and a fine actress it's by all accounts. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, uh, it's uh, it's a, a, I know it's a very small budget movie, hence the reason that there's so much excitement <laughs> that it's made it uh, to the Oscars. Anyone I know that's gone along to see it is loving it. And the basic storyline, I think a lot of people have seen the trailer. It's to do with them fostering or looking after a, is it a relative's child uh, it's uh, yeah so the little girl the uh, coit uh, she's uh, kind of living in a very kind of dysfunctional family the father's an alcoholic is a farmer uh, there's not much money coming into the house she's got three sisters uh, the mother has another child on the way you know there's constant references to the fact that uh, they need to bring in the hay but uh, he can't afford to get this man to bring in the hay he keeps kind of referencing the fact that uh, the girls and especially coit will eat you out of house and home and so therefore that's why he doesn't have any money so there's no relationship whatsoever between the girls and this kind of bullying kind of father. Uh, and so what they decide to do is kind of to take kind of uh, some of the pressure off the family f- finances. They decide that court played here beautifully by Catherine uh, Clinch. They've decided that uh, she should go and stay with uh, some distant cousins uh, of theirs, uh, just to kind of, as I say, ease the finances of the family. And, um, and so she goes to live with um, uh, Carrie Crowley and her husband, Andrew Bennett. And they're much Do they have children? They don't have children. They're farmers as well, but uh, they have a much more kind of... Um, exp- uh, you know, they, they're much more successful farmers, so they okay. have much more money. So all of a sudden, Coit is kind of suddenly kind of thrust into a very, very different world uh, where suddenly she's being she's given a biscuit, which is kind of new to her. She's kind of doesn't really quite understand uh, what to do. and She's quite confused uh, by that. And initially, because of her kind of relationship and lack of relationship with her family and because of the stress that she was going through, she initially kind of wets the bed. Uh, but she finds in Carrie Crowley a very, very different kind of warmth. Uh, that she hadn't been kind of experienced before, for example. And it's called uh, Uncalling Kuhn because she doesn't really talk very much. And everybody thinks she's a bit weird, but she isn't at all. She's just in this kind of dysfunction.
dysfunctional family uh, and it's not really very good for her mental health. So all of a sudden she's in a very, very different kind of environment. A loving environment. Initially, yes, but certainly from uh, Carrie Crowley who, with whom she has uh, you know, a, a sudden kind of a, a relationship, not so much with the husband Andrew Bennett. That kind of takes a while because of something which has happened in the past. For example, Carrie says to her, you know, you don't have to have any secrets. There are no secrets here. But of course, there are secrets. There are secrets in every family, I think. Uh, and that's something that she finds out uh, as time kind of progresses. And after a while, Andrew Bennett's kind of relationship with Coit uh, begins to kind of thaw and they begin a kind of relationship. And it's a kind of a completely new world uh, for this uh, little girl. Uh, and it's it's beautifully realized. I'm glad to be able to say it really is. I met somebody who, who hated who hated it, by oh, the way. Yeah, okay. they thought it was just, just dreadful. They thought it was a bit silly old nonsense. But it isn't. I mean, all this, uh, the film, the, uh, actually if you listen to um, the conversation this, the, the, the screenplay itself is just mainly conversation between people you know what I mean, but that's not what it's about it's about this little girl and her environments and and how she's kind of dealing with uh, being in this kind of very, very kind of, an, an a, what is an alien world to her, uh, a world of warmth and happiness and, and, and love and so and, and the way in which that's kind of um, portrayed is through her environment, where she is, the sky, uh, the fields, uh, the you know the flowers, the trees, and all that is beautifully realized with a beautiful soundtrack, beautifully directed. I loved the music, I have to say, yeah, and it, great, yeah. uh, and the and the, the the cinematography is absolutely gorgeous. And as you say, it's a small, tiny, it's a, it's, a, it's a small budget film, uh, but it's just beautifully done, and that's what you want. I mean, it won't be, as I say, to everybody's taste. Although, mm. if you look at Rotten Tomatoes, I think it's at ninety three percent. So, uh, so really people high. really, really do yeah. love the movie. And, and I know, surprised. I know, it was a, I know it was one of these lockdown projects. It was filmed during the lockdown and, and the pandemic. I assume it was filmed here in Ireland, was it? Uh, it was filmed, yes, down in Waterford. Uh, oh, is, yeah, and okay. it's, set, it's set back in 1981. There's some lovely moments, by the way, when they got the TV on in the background. And they actually found the Quicksilver with Bunny Car. <laughs> they found Wanderly Wagon. Uh, yeah. You know, commentary from Me Hollow Hair, which I thought was yeah. really, really lovely. It's a very gentle, very sweet, very moving uh, with beautiful imagery, and uh, which as I say, w look, it won't be for everybody, but I thought it was an absolute uh, delight. And uh, this little girl, Catherine Clinch, I mean, she is a star of the future. She's another search of run, and she has to be. Is uh, she? She's, yeah. she's absolutely terrific. She really is. The only, I've, I've one thought, the only thing is, is obviously, in a lot of the actors are natural Irish speakers, and so therefore, it, you know, the, the conversation is a bit kind of, you know, when people kind of learn monster Irish, and it's not really, it doesn't really quite flow, and that was the only thing at times when th that I had problems with because it just didn't seem kind of the the conversation didn't seem natural because you knew that they were speaking, a, you know, a language that they had learned as opposed to something yeah, that well they had Yeah, well, Car Carrie Crowley's an native Irish speaker, I do and know she, that. And she's the best thing yeah, in this movie. Yeah. I mean, she really is absolutely terrific. It's uh, nominated for Best International Feature Film and it could win. Wow, and I there's only so. five there. They don't nominate a lot in that category. Yeah, there's only it five. Could, it could so it's, it's, it's in with the shot, yeah. Um, I saw somebody say that the, the, the direction is restrained uh, and the acting beautiful throughout, and I thought that was a lovely description. She has the, the, this little girl has a, these extraordinary blue eyes. And yeah. And, and and the fact that she, you know, uh, in parts of it, she's not speaking. So it's 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 got to be her facial and her her reactions to uh, things. Well, exactly. Yes. And because it's all, it's all basically it's about her. As I said, it's, she's like the center of this new different world. And so therefore she has to express herself, not so much through uh, conversation, but through those extraordinary eyes. And uh, and she's amazing. In it. OK, so I said 100 percent agree with uh, Mark on Colin Kuhn was the best movie that I have seen in a long time. And someone else wants to know where 
where is it available? It's not available for download. Sure, it's not. It's no, I, I went to the cinema last yeah, night. Unfortunately, there was me and two others in the cinema, which ah. I thought was a bit of a shame. Okay, but it, it is in cinema. But it's still a, it's still doing the rounds of the cinemas. It is, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now your second movie is I Love My Dad. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which is okay. This is one of the most uncomfortable films I have watched in a very, okay. very long time. Goodness me, it's about catfishing. Do you know you you know, know. what catfishing I is because know catfishing. you're a modern woman much more than I am. So I had to look it up, and basically, you know what catfishing is is that somebody goes on the internet and pretends to be somebody that they're not. And um, so this is written and directed by a young man by the name of James Morrissini, and he says it's based on a true story. And he says that uh, this happened between him and his dad. So basically, um, there's him, there's his dad and his mom. And uh, they too, like the other film, they're dysfunctional. They've all pretty much uh, split up. Um, um, uh, his mother and father are divorced and have moved on. And he has decided that it's his dad who is responsible for the breakup of the marriage and, and the family. And so he decides to just break any communication uh, with him um, uh, in any way, shape or form. Which, um, as you can imagine, uh, you know, the, the, the dad is distraught because he loves this young man. He wants to be part of his life and finds that he can't be. And so he was sitting in a restaurant. He meets uh, this uh, young woman by the name of Becca. And suddenly this, he hatches this idea to go online um, to basically steal uh, Becca's identity takes photographs from her uh, Facebook site, which is a bit creepy, and uh, pretends to be this Becca online to reconnect again with his son. Uh, which wow, how which all sounds very, very dark and, and very, yeah. very weird. But it is based on a true story. The director says this actually happened. And, um, and so they... <laughs> So throughout the film, you have some of the most uncomfortable things I've ever seen on screen, where, of course, the relationship begins to, you know, grow, and they come become closer online, and they text each other an awful lot. And, of course, at, after a while, it becomes a little bit more emotional, and, um, and they start sexting, and so things like that make the watching of this very, That's very uncomfortable. Ick. And so what they do is whilst they're texting each other, they have the actuals then the actors portray themselves as if, you know, they are together. Yeah. And so whilst at the same time the father is in the bathroom texting and pretending to be this girl. Now it all yes, it all sounds very, very odd and very strange, but for some reason it works. For some reason it really, really is it turns out to be sweet and gentle and, and very tender. And the thing is is that you wouldn't think it would be, but that's all down to this young man, this director. Uh, this writer who's very, very good, and um, Patton Oswalt. Now, Patton Oswalt plays the father, uh, which is a name that people might know. He's best known for the voice of Remy in Ratatouille. Okay. And, yeah. and he is absolutely terrific in the film. And you can see that it's all because, and the way it, and it's, it's beautifully written because it, it was just out of sheer desperation. And then, of course, it just it just propels itself out of c control and then he finds himself in a situation where he doesn't know what to do he doesn't know how to get out of it and of course he feels terrible uh, and of course of the deeper he gets in the harder it is to get out of exactly, it exactly yeah so um, and the thing is you would think that uh, now initially, initially it's creepy uh, initially I, I mean I was watching this behind my hands uh, but um, it's you know it's, it's gotten very good reviews and people I think have seen the kind of sweetness and the, and the tenderness and the gentleness behind it all and the reasons why and in the end 
it's really rather lovely, and um, I have to recommend it. Not for kids, obviously. Yeah. It's an R-rated. I think it's 15s or 16s. Um, uh, but yeah, I would certainly recommend it. But um, yeah, it, that, there are times when it's not an yeah, easy watch. Yeah, once you get over that uncomfortable part of it, it's it's worth the watch. Okay, I love my dad. Mark that out of ten. I'll give it seven. Seven out of ten. And I forgot to ask you to mark on Colin Kuhn. Somebody has said you never asked. You never <laughs> marked uh, mark it out of ten. I'll give it nine. Nine out of ten. Yeah. All right. Listen, thank you for that. Have a lovely week, okay. and we will chat to you again at next week. That is Mark Malone, our movie reviewer. That OPW meeting where they're meeting with councillors from the Mallow uh, area and other public reps to outline uh, what's the plan for that site in Karakil and the works that's been going on at the moment and is it a suitable site for modular homes for Ukrainians I'm now being told is going to go on into this afternoon so hence the reason that we didn't get any answer back uh, today on it but I promise you we will be dealing with it probably first thing on Monday morning because I know there was a lot of commentary this week from people just nervous about what's happening there let us know fill us in please so we'll have hopefully uh, all of the information from that meeting on Monday morning Morning. And the to the person who was having problems trying to get their driving license with the NDLS website, we've contacted the RSA. They haven't come back to us yet, but no doubt we'll have an answer back from them on Monday as well. That's why I leave you for today. Thanks to John Paul McNamara, who produced Nick Richards with you for the afternoon. Talk to you Monday at 10. Have a lovely weekend. On C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. CMIG.ie. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.